This week on Myths and Legends, it's a Slavic legend where we'll learn the benefits of making someone carry you and your car inside when you show up as a guest at their house and why a horse skull makes a terrible soccer ball. The creature this week is a person who will take a nap in their sleeping bag ears in the middle of the grocery store. This is Myths and Legends, episode 246, The Queen's Gambit. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story comes to us from Ukraine, and it's a story of the, and it's a story of the Kievan Rus, a federation of tribes that Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus claim as a cultural ancestor. Set in the 9th and 10th centuries, today's story starts with the people who founded a dynasty, and just how hard it was to keep the lights on after the first king kicks the bucket, or rather, the horse skull. What do you mean you're not paying your bills? Igor asked Mal's messenger. The man said he felt like that statement was pretty self-explanatory. They didn't feel like paying their bills. They weren't going to do it. Yeah, but that's a tribute. You have to pay us for the protection against our many enemies, Igor said. They were, in fact, sandwiched between Vikings to the north and the Byzantine Empire to the south. Neither of those guys were really messing around. That sounds like more of a you problem, the messenger narrowed his eyes. And also kind of a protection racket. Fact was, things were so peaceful them, the Drevlians, their tribe, that they didn't feel like they needed to pay to be part of the alliance anymore. Igor said that things were peaceful because his dad made them peaceful. His dad allied the tribes and created the Kievan Rus, a loose federation that comprises parts of modern-day Ukraine, Russia, Finland, and Belarus. Together, this federation of tribes laid siege to the empire and won. It was inspiring. It was also like, what, 30 years ago? What have you done for us lately? The messenger replied. Trading posts? Roads? The protection that we already talked about? Igor said he wasn't going into any of this. They made a deal with Oleg, Igor's father, to pay tribute to Kiev. Yeah, and he's dead. So, you know, we're off the hook. The messenger smiled. Igor groaned. It had been weeks of this. Not only did he have to deal with the death of his father, but the life his father had lived. The man was a legend. Igor would be lucky if he ever got out of the man's shadow, but now he had the fun of trying to assert himself with friends and foe alike that there would be a continuity of service in Kiev, that things were just the same as when the old man ruled. Thing was, actually, Oleg hadn't been that old. He was, well, he was Arrow Odded. Real quickly, if you haven't heard the saga of Arrow Odd, please go listen to episodes 31A and B because I'm about to spoil the ending. Oleg of Novgorod, which, if that city name sounds familiar, I think it's the city that Ogman takes over in the Arrow Odd saga. Anyway, Oleg was likely so confident when he was off fighting everyone because a magician had said that his favorite horse would kill him. Oleg didn't do what Arrow Odd did. 
because Arawad immediately knifed his horse. Instead, he just asked that the horse would have a pleasant life, but never be led into his presence. And that order held. As Oleg went around negotiating with his neighbors, and as he put ships on wheels and rode into a confused Byzantine imperial capital at Constantinople, the horse grazed, played around with other horses, just lived a happy horse life with its pasture pals, until its death after a couple decades. They buried it in a field, and that was that. Oleg came home victorious, having worked out a treaty with Byzantium, unified the realm, and fathered an heir. Things were good. To prove that he was even more powerful than those magicians and their prophecies, he asked to see the horse who, ah, oh, bummer, was dead. He ordered it dug up, so he could, and this is a nearly direct quote, jump on its skull a little bit. When he did so, a venomous snake slithered out, bit him on the leg, and he died within the week. Oleg, the guy who was arrow-odded, left his son, Igor, in the best and worst possible positions. Best because, by Oleg's sheer force of will, he unified the tribes into a nation that could stand up to an empire, that had stood up to an empire. Worst because Igor was not Oleg. The tribes were either leaving or refusing to pay tribute. Also, mail just came in from the Byzantine Empire. The treaty they had? Yeah, they were going to go in a different direction, namely north, to war with the Kievan Rus, Igor's people. Igor rose to the occasion, though, and alongside the tribes that still hung by him, managed to rout the Byzantines, withstand their Greek fire, and reinstated the treaties, bringing peace, once again, to the land. Peace for them. They did do a lot of plundering and enslaving. Getting home, he found the tribes amenable to his rule. Well, all but one. All but the Drevlians. Riding back, going to see his wife and son for the first time in two years, Igor decided to take a detour. They were going to pay the Drevlians a little visit. And they did. That single tribe couldn't stand against all the others combined. And soon, Mal, the leader of the Drevlians, was kneeling in the street, hands behind his head, with a sword to his neck. They would take that tribute now. And they did. A big one that made up for years of obstinacy from the Drevlians. It took nearly a month to get all the cities of the Drevlians together, but soon the tribute was paid and Igor was going home, victorious. Still, as he rode, something still chafed at him. Mal and these Drevlians... They had spit in his face, metaphorically speaking. Their insubordination had encouraged the other tribes to hold back. It had nearly cost them in the war with the Byzantines. Igor told his army to continue on to Kiev. He was taking a small personal guard and heading back to Iskorosten, the capital of the Drevlings. Well. The king is dead, Olga, the queen, heard. She nearly spit out her wine. What? How did this happen? Was it the war? The courtier replied that no, he was super successful in the war. Killed a lot of people, took a lot of slaves. It's totally part of war right now. It's a dark time for the world. Anywho, this happened like, I don't know, a couple days ride from here, in our own lands. I should really let this messenger from the Drevlians explain things. He was among the people who, you know, murdered the king. <laughs> the messenger waved. Oop, 
Guilty. Olga pointed to her guards. Kill this man. As they approached with their spears out, the messenger said that she really didn't want to do that. What would the tribes think when they found out their land was kingless? Olga waved her hand and the spears lowered. It wasn't kingless. There was Igor's son and heir. A three-year-old, really? He's going to stand against the empire? Olga sighed. Shulbite, what was the messenger proposing? Yes, that's it, exactly. He was proposing. Well, not him, exactly. He was just a messenger. Unless... Nope, okay, worth a shot. Yeah, he was actually here to propose on behalf of Mal. Mal, Olga remarked, the leader of the Drevlians, the man who killed her husband. The messenger said no, he didn't kill her husband. Well, he did give the order, but he didn't, like, hold the knife. She should really try to see this whole tribute thing from their perspective. Igor went too far. He asked too much of them. And then he came back to ask for more. He was like a wolf left in charge of the sheep. He would just come and take and take until everything was gone, just to punish them. So, since she was single and looking for a strong male to lead their kingdom, so that they weren't attacked on all sides and overthrown, Mal was generously extending this offer. He would even move from his homeland and take up residence in this palace in Kiev, and definitely not kill Igor's son before he was old enough to rival his power. This message grated on Olga, but she couldn't ignore it, or the truths within, she announced. She told the messenger to wait outside. She would discuss this with her advisors. The messenger couldn't hear much through the stone walls of the palace, but he could hear the queen shouting at her advisors that they dare support such a union. Her husband was barely cold, and now she was expected to marry his murderer? There was more talk, but then the heavy oak doors creaked open. They beckoned the messenger in. You came by ship, correct? The queen asked. She was cold, stoic like she fully grasped the gravity of her situation and realized that the Drevlians were her only hope. The messenger nodded. Of course. The queen sighed and pinched the bridge of her nose. If you hope to rule over the people, to show them your superiority, you have to demand their service. It was a lesson my father-in-law knew innately and one it took my husband many years to learn, Olga said. She accepted Mal's marriage proposal. The leader of the Drevlians was right. She had no other choice if she wished to safeguard her life and the life of her son. But here's how it had to go down. The messenger would come back tomorrow and formally announce the proposal and she would accept in front of her boyars in court. They had to prove themselves worthy of the hand of the queen. So when they are to be escorted to the palace, they should refuse to disembark from their ship the wide-hulled river longboat they arrived in. They should remain there with an aspect of arrogance, refusing to walk or ride, insisting, instead, on being carried in their boat. The people would scoff, of course, but they would have no choice. In that way, the Drevlians would show that they were greater than the people of the city, and that their leader deserves the hand of the queen. The messenger grinned. Yeah, he liked this. He bowed before his queen and the future wife of his leader, saying that he would see her tomorrow.
When you think about people carrying a boat, it's not like a Pirate of the Caribbean ship or something. It's like a Viking longboat. In fact, it was likely designed to be carried over stretches of river that were too shallow even for its wide hull. That being said, it really was an arrogant move to refuse to leave the boat and insist that your hosts find the necessary tools to hoist you up out of the river and carry you on their shoulders into the city. Also, the ship was usually emptied out when they carried it up a shallow or dried out river, not full of 20 guys acting like they're better than you. As the queen instructed, by messenger of her own, the Drevelians sat in their boat, puffed up in their silks and other fineries, looking down at the people, like literally looking down at the people, that brought them, step by agonizing step, into the capital, all while the people of Kiev lamented that their king was dead. Slavery was their lot, as their queen married his murderers. On the lead up to the castle, when they finally were at the top of the hill, the carriers lowered the ship onto log rollers for the rest of the journey. The messenger rose, what were they doing? No one told the people to put them down. They wanted to be carried, he yelled out with big toddler energy. The ship lurched forward as the people who had been carrying them rushed to the back to push them. The messenger turned, why all the hurry? Then he saw the pit, the massive yawning black of the abyss that had been dug the night before by all the people at the queen's orders. He yelled out to his men to abandon ship, but it was too late. They rolled off the logs and into the dark. When the messenger came to, he could make out from the light that shined from above that the ship was upside down. The men it hadn't crushed were either unconscious or clawing at the dirt, trying to climb out. The messenger looked up and saw the silhouette of the queen framed by the gray sky. She bent down, and the story says that she asked if they found the honor to their taste. The messenger shook his head. When Mal found out about this, Olga smirked. Well, that was a bold assumption that he would find out. Olga trusted in the messenger's silence. The messenger started to laugh, saying that he would never stay silent about this dishonor, but his words were choked out by the dirt that found his open mouth. All the people that had been commanded to carry them up from the docks were now filling in the hole. By the next day, it was a level plot of land. And in a few weeks' time, when Mal's next messengers arrived, asking after the first, stones had been laid and a garden planted, completely concealing the death below. So, where's the diplomatic team that came like two months ago? The warrior asked Olga. Olga smiled. They got their fill of the pleasures of the capital, so she sent them on a tour of the lands, so they could assert themselves with all the other surrounding tribes. The Drevlians would soon be the most powerful group in the Kievan Rus. Everyone should know about them. The warrior said that he liked her style. All right, he was here with a few dozen of the Drevlians' best warriors to escort her to Iskorosten, per her request. Yes, Olga replied. She heard it can be dangerous on the road. The warrior thought about it. Oh, because we murdered your husband on the road in an ambush. Olga nodded. Yes, that was the subtext. She'll be ready to leave in a few days. In the meantime, did the men want to get comfortable? Maybe take a bath? 
they had hot baths here in Kiev. In fact, it was such a luxury that she insisted. She would have one cleared out for the day, heated, and the Drevli and Best would have the privilege of a private bath. Her treat. The men grinned. Wow. Yeah. After days on the road, that sounded amazing. And while it was a bit of a common misconception that people in the Middle Ages were always dirty or didn't bathe a lot, a hot bath for a traveling warrior was always nice. Thank you. The warriors all undid their armor, leaving it in the outer room, before entering the bath. As Olga heard them laughing and relaxing in the steam, she looked to her own warriors. Do it. Do it. Now. Because of the steam, the Drevlians didn't see the door shut, and... Because of their conversation, they didn't hear the bar drop or the servants shuffling their armor from the outer room. They didn't realize that the steam was smoke until it was too late or that Olga had ignited the doors. There wasn't one survivor from the fire that consumed the bathhouse. And one bathhouse was a small price to pay to avenge her beloved. She told one of her advisors to take the ring of one of the now late warriors sent from the Drevlians and send a message to their leader, Mal. She would be arriving soon. We'll see what happens when Olga arrives at the city where her husband was killed, but that will be right after this. trust you have the mead ready for the ceremony, Olga said, upon meeting Mal. The man smiled as he rose from his seat, taking her hand and kissing it. Of course. And he had to say, she was even more beautiful than the tales about her described. The ceremony wasn't a wedding ceremony. Not yet. It was a funeral feast for the late King Igor. Now that Mal was going to marry the queen, he pretended to have all the reverence in the world for the old king you know, despite murdering him. Olga had stopped for a private moment at her husband's grave, a heap of stones by the roadside where he had been murdered. His body had been left for the animals, but some followers had returned in the night and buried it. Now, he was getting the honors he deserved. He was getting everything he deserved. What, what did you just say? Mal asked. Oh, just like her husband was getting the funeral feast and the mead and remembrance he deserved. Nothing ominous. Mal said, oh, it just sounded like vengeful, portent-laden murmurings over there. She said, no, those were excited murmurings. She was marrying the man who murdered the man she loved. Every girl's dream. Mal laughed. This is a violent time in the world. All right, all right, let's get to the mead. Per Olga's request, Nearly 5,000 of the tribe's best warriors, nobles, and leaders were gathered together to honor the late king and celebrate the new one. A massive feast was laid out, and mead poured out in every goblet. Olga was buying, too, so she encouraged everyone to just, like, go nuts with the mead. Really tie one on. There was no such thing as overdoing it tonight. So, you know, enjoy. The people cheered. It was around one in the morning that everyone was feeling... Pretty great. Mal himself kissed Olga on the face and stumbled his way to the bathroom. As he shook the chill of the night air off on his way back in, excited to chase it away with more mead and laughter, 
he looked up at his guard. You know, you guys can take the armor off here. They weren't out on the road traveling with the queen anymore. They were home. Have fun. The man didn't respond. And usually, Mao would welcome his employee's silence, but the man didn't respond at all to his request. Okay, Mal said, swaying there. Now it was an order. Remove the armor. In fact, he was going to go in and tell everyone to remove their armor. It was a party, and it was weird that they were all still armed, even if they were his best, most trusted knights. The man in front of him shrugged and removed the helmet. And Mal saw a face he didn't recognize. Despite his current state, he made the obvious conclusion and turned to scream out to the room that the queen's men had killed his warriors and taken their place. This was a red wedding level ambush. Like I said, he turned to scream, but he saw that it would have been useless. The queen sat at the head table with one of her knights on either side, while those in the armor of the Drevlian knights and others who concealed daggers at the tables went to work. The ones who saw the first victims screamed and then the whole room dropped into chaos. The knight who stood before Mal drew his own sword, and the brave leader bolted. He ran away as fast as he could. The day was lost. He had to get to safety. In the morning, in the silent hall, nearly 5,000 were dead. The queen and her retinue left the city the moment the deed was done. Mal called in his chief advisor, telling him to send an envoy to the Byzantines and prepare for war. The advisor said that that's why he was waiting outside of Mal's room. They were already at war. She, Olga, arranged an attack on the Drevlian towns in the night. The same time she started the massacre at the funeral feast. Mal asked which towns, who needed reinforcements. The advisor swallowed hard. Um, all of them? Olga had hit every town at the same time, and though some managed to resist even for a few weeks, no one held out long. Within a month or two, every single one of the Drevlian towns had been taken. The queen, though, was not a tyrant. She wasn't even her husband. Igor's death had been unjustified, but so had been his request for double the tribute from the Drevlians. That ignited anger and fear in them, anger at the injustice and fear of more to come and they reacted. Olga not only limited the amount of tribute she would take from the towns, but she put it in writing, so it wouldn't change. She also used the tribute to make roads and trading posts and fund farms for the Drevlians. The region flourished. Well, all but Iskorosten, the capital. Mal shut the gates, and their walls kept out the army that approached in the weeks following the funeral feast massacre. One year later, with the Iskorosten populace dying of famine and plague, the city remained shut. Olga and her son, Sivyatoslav, arrived at the capital. Mal walked out with an envoy. Wow, he, he was looking rougher than the last time she had seen him. Mal looked to the ground. He, he wanted this to be over. Olga laughed as the wind whipped their tent. Okay, easy. Surrender. All the other cities did, and for a little tribute... They now cultivated their lands in peace. 
Mal shook his head. No, he knew he couldn't surrender. Mal had killed Igor. He knew she was still bent on avenging her husband. She would massacre his people. Olga laughed. Buddy, I already massacred your people. Your diplomatic envoys, your warriors, everyone at the funeral feast. Anyone who resisted in any of the cities I took? Look, we both want this to be over. I have an empire sniffing around, and they can smell weakness. If he paid tribute, like he was supposed to with her husband, all this would end. Today, it would be a nice full circle thing, totally buttoned up, all good. And she didn't know if he heard from his other cities, but her tribute? Not that bad. She wasn't her husband. She didn't have a chip on her shoulder trying to prove that she was as powerful as daddy. She was pragmatic. Tribute today, and tomorrow she would depart. Mal asked, Really? It could be that easy. He said, Okay, yeah, he'll do it. But the thing about being besieged for a year, they didn't have a lot of nice stuff. They ate all their food. They paid all their money and valuables to smugglers to get things in and out of the sewers around Olga's watches. They had nothing to give. Olga waved, dismissing her guards and courtiers. She was alone with Mal. Okay, be real. What did he have? She would take anything, but she had to take something. Otherwise, it looked, to her people, like she lost. And Mal knew that, like... 80% of this royalty thing was just keeping up appearances, making people believe you have the right to rule. Smoke and mirrors. The other part was legally being able to murder people. You did the first part, so you didn't have to do the second part. He had to have something. Mal looked to the ground. His people were reduced to catching and eating pigeons. Like he said, they had nothing. She snapped her fingers. Pigeons, yeah, pigeons. Doves, sparrows, whatever. What was a good number? Three? Three was a solid fairy tale number. Three from every house. All those birds? That would be an impressive number. It would satisfy both of their people. She would be seen as taking everything they had left, even their sad pigeon dinners, and it wouldn't really be a loss for his people. Done and done. They shook on it, and Mal went back to the city to tell his starving people the good news. We'll see the end of the war, but that, once again, will be right after this. Birds, the Queen's general shook his head at the piles upon piles of cages. We're a week away from cracking the city like an egg and you give it up for birds? When the general saw that the queen wasn't shirking, he added, Your majesty? The queen, smiling at the people bringing them tribute, turned to her general. And how many months have they been a week away from cracking these walls? This was the solution. Now he should tell his troops to be ready to leave tomorrow. It took most of the day, but the people of the city were now pretty adept at catching the wild birds so by nightfall, they were nearly finished. The houses that didn't have three birds were invited to come take theirs from the public places. The halls, the baths. For the first time in a year, there was hope. 
That being said, they still kept the main gate closed that night, though Olga allowed their provisions to pass through her blockades and make their way into the city. When the last of the Drevlians had dropped off the birds and she waved goodbye, smiling, she turned to her closest advisors. Everyone knew the plan, right? Let's end this war. They threw open the wagons that the queen had brought from all around the kingdom and found two things, chunks of sulfur and strips of cloth. One team tied the long strips of cloth to the feet of the birds. The other tied the sulfur to the cloth. Finally, they walked from bird to bird with a lit torch. As soon as the sulfur caught, they let the birds go. Mao was awakened from his first restful sleep in a year to a burning city. He would never know it, but the reason why Olga wanted three birds from every house was so that, when she let them go, at least one would return to its nest with a burning chunk of sulfur following it. The firefighters that they had couldn't help anyone because every home in the city was burning at the same time. Their only hope was to throw open the gates and make a run for it. And whoever Olga's soldiers didn't kill, they enslaved for their role in Igor's murder. Though really, like, what was a tanner supposed to do about his tribal leader wanting to ambush the king? So yeah, they totally deserve that. Mal perished in the blaze. And as the city stood smoking and smoldering the following day, Olga could rest assured that her husband had been avenged. She, a woman of her word, left for home. Olga and her son were safe. That's the end of the main story, but that's not the end of Olga's story. This is not actually what she's known for today. She's a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church, and that's because, her realm secure, she did pay a visit to Constantinople, the seat of power for the Byzantine Empire. She didn't come seeking war, but knowledge. She got along very well with the emperor, Constantine, but not like the big guy that the city was named after. This was Constantine VII. Anyway, she came seeking knowledge about Christianity, and the emperor was happy to instruct her. That came out sounding weirder than I meant it. It wasn't like that. He taught her the tenets of the faith. She converted, and he himself baptized her. Now that she was baptized, though, it kind of was like that. Wink. She said that while she would love to compromise her own power and standing with her people, in addition to throwing her son's authority and kingship into doubt by marrying a powerful emperor, didn't he just baptize her? Connie said, yeah, that's why they were having this conversation. She grimaced, but according to what he himself had taught her, since he baptized her, that made him her godfather. She was like his daughter. He said, now, was she so sure about that? She said that he had literally been calling her his daughter since the baptism. Yes, she was sure. Constantine said, uh, oh, well, um, this sort of changed things. Oh, oh my gosh, the time. This has been fun, but he had some stuff to get to, King Emperor stuff. 
early meeting tomorrow. He has to subjugate some people and all that. She knows how it goes. He should go. She could see herself out, right? She smiled. Well, he was welcome to her now Christianized land anytime he wanted. He pointed, yes, absolutely. Uh, talk to Martha. We'll get it in the calendar. Excited? Woo. All right, bye. Constantine VII lived about another five years and never went there. That being said, neither did his warriors. And the Kievan Rus didn't have another war with Constantinople in Olga's lifetime. And she didn't have to ride down a hill on wheeled ships. Just use the emperor's own rules against him. Quickly, that last bit, with the emperor, is considered legendary, because Constantine VII was thought to have a wife at the time of Olga's visit. And, as we know, ancient medieval emperors 100% respected the institution of marriage and would never act on their baser urges. Olga did return home, and her conversion appears to have been genuine because she tried to convince her son to join the faith and convert the Kievan Rus at large. Her son refused, and it wouldn't be until Olga's grandson that the Kievan Rus would convert. That is, after Olga's son was murdered and her grandsons engaged in a fratricidal war, but the question was put to rest when Vladimir I married the daughter of the Byzantine emperor. For Olga's role in being one of the first to convert and attempting to lead her people to the faith, she was venerated as a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Next week, it's a story from Argentina about a cat lady, a micromanager, and the grossest hors d'oeuvre platter you can imagine. The creature this week is the Dogai, from the folklore of the people of the Torres Strait Islands. Now, if you're an immortal, evil magic user, please allow me to spell out your morning routine so the rest of us can understand you. If you go picking out fruit, but realize that fruit needs some time to ripen, what do you do? Well, you set the fruit down next to you, set your internal alarm for a few days from now, remember, you're immortal and magical, so no one is going to mess with you, and take a nice long nap out in the open. And if anyone does mess with the evil sorcerer, well, hey, free spouse. The Dogai is female, so when a sailor woke her up, stealing all of her ripened fruit, she lunged for him. Unfortunately, her hands were caught in her sleeping bag, aka her ears. The creature is said to have long, skinny legs and small feet, and ears that are so large, she can lay on one of them like a mat and cover herself with the other, like a blanket. Thus, thus, all the impromptu napping. I don't need any extra incentive to sleep, and if I was my own sleeping bag, forget about it. Anyway, the man scrambled up a nearby tree, and the Dogai, the Dogai liked what she saw. She told the man to come down, bring the fruit with him, and she would feed him back at her house, which he would absolutely be able to leave whenever he wanted. He said he was not about to fall for that and stayed in the tree. The Dogai couldn't follow him up because he would throw stuff down after her, and she refused to leave unless she came away with both the fruit and the sailor. They were at kind of an impasse. Then, the sailor had an idea. He told the Dogai that he would throw her fruit down to her, and the first couple he dropped right below. The next few he tossed 5, 10, 20 feet away. Remember, this fruit had been ripening for days. So there was no five-second rule. If it hit the ground, it went splat. So wide receiver Dogai caught her fruit as the sailor, who could have gone pro if coach would have put him in the fourth quarter and they won state, threw it 20, 40, 50 yards. When the Dogai was far enough away, 
she waited for the sailor to throw another when she saw him dump the fruit and run from the tree back to his boats. She scrambled after him, but found a dozen other sailors aiming weapons at the forest before she emerged. Her quarry and the love of her life, at least for the last 10 minutes, had gotten away. The doe guy went home and returned to her nap. Little did she know, the sailors were not the forgiving type. None of them wanted to meet an evil creature with sleeping bag ears that would take them home to be her compulsory husband. They stormed the woods, found her house where she slept, and harpooned her in the arm. Of course, the sailors didn't know that they had disadvantage against a prone creature with a ranged attack, so the harpoon didn't kill her. She frantically sunk into the ground to escape, while the whole group of sailors pulled at the harpoon. Only the Dogai's arm came out of the ground. The sailors thought that this was good enough, and it was. The Dogai, while she might be immortal age-wise, was not invulnerable to injury. She died underground, which made for a very cheap funeral, but don't be too relieved. The Dogai is actually a type of creature, not just this one. So, if you find someone sleeping next to some fruit ripening in their own ears, maybe don't steal from them, and you'll probably be fine. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>